it's about be, building um, the intelligence into these systems to be able to react much more quickly. So it's not about taking like 12 months, 18 months worth of data and forecasting around those. It's got to be these systems need to adapt much more quickly to what's happening over the last hour, the last day. On today's podcast, our guest is David Excel, the founder of FeatureSpace, an organisation trying to help financial institutions protect themselves and customers against fraud. This is Tech Talks. It's your twice-weekly tech podcast with myself, David Savage, today joined by my wife, Hayley, because our usual co-hosting team are all on holiday. But not to worry, Hayley's a technology project manager, so more qualified than me. We're bringing you interviews with leaders from across the industry and a bit of tech news. Joining me today to talk about consumer uh, spending, <laughs> this is great, isn't it? It's my wife. <laughs> Let's talk about how we spend money. <laughs> we spend it very well. <laughs> so our guest is Dave Excel, who um, is founder of Feature Space, an organisation that works with financial institutions to spot um, or use data rather to spot trends in spending habits and then stop uh, fraud occurring or making sure that systems don't think fraud is occurring and then blocking your card and, and creating a, an issue for the customer. Um, before we get into that, I mean, this this could be interesting, right? I mean, the amount of crap we've bought in lockdown. Oh my God. Like, I'm quite, it's obviously working very well because we've had no phone calls saying, do you really need roller skates? <laughs> well, no, the whole point is they're kind of building consumer profiles, aren't they? And uh, our yeah. consumer profile is they buy random shit. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, I just remembered I bought a tutu as well. That yeah, you fun. did. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're screwed. I don't think it would yeah, work good for luck. us. Um, anyway, we'll get into that after the interview. So we'll introduce Dave. We'll let him uh, speak, and then we'll come back with some commentary afterwards. So today we are talking to Dave uh, Excel from Feature Space. Thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm David, and thank you for having me on, on the podcast. It's great to be on. Look, you are dialing in from uh, Atlanta, I assume Atlanta, Georgia, but you've spent 13 years previously in London, and your accent doesn't suggest that London is where you hailed from originally. No, prior to that, it was Australia. So I've been, uh, grew up there and then made the voyage um, to the UK, I think, in 2004. Uh, and Feature Space is a company that you started whilst you're in the UK, right? Yeah, that's great. While well, I was studying um, for my PhD at the University of Cambridge, that was a great experience um, to be able to, to study there and learn and, and be influenced by all the other great academics that were fortunate to go to Cambridge. So, look, before we dive into anything else, what is Feature Space for people who haven't heard of your business? So, we're an enterprise financial crime company. So, we work with different financial services organizations to help them combat um, fraud and um, anti-money laundering um, techniques, essentially working with um, financial crime professionals to be able to use analytics to be able to detect um, fraudulent or suspicious activity in a way that then balances off um, customer friction, where you don't want to impact genuine customers from using those products in a way that's going to, to make it harder to um, withdraw money, spend their money and interact with their financial service products. So... With regards to financial crime, I suppose look, we 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 had um, we've had talks recently on the show where we've talked about the dangers of the fact that everyone is sat at home and they're they're shopping virtually. There's a lot more uh, hacks coming through. Fraud is is on the rise. 
But equally, I suppose it's not just sitting at home and spending. We're shopping differently. Shops are encouraging people to use contactless more, and there's various different payment options now entering the market as a consequence. So I suppose there's a huge amount of change going on right now. How are consumers beginning to change their spending habits? And is this is what we're seeing through COVID different from what we've seen through other upheavals and, and world events, I suppose, over the last 20 years or so? I think like, when I think about it is there's a few different types of changes is there's changes that we could have that we foresee or forced upon ourselves. So if we, like, I guess, think about the UK payments where we went into chip and signature and then we've moved into more contactless payments. So there's been an evolution of technology that we've naturally been able to predict and see as we've sort of implemented those, they've been rolled out and we've sort of seen a gradual uptake as they've become um, more and more popular. Um, and then in a, in a similar way, um, probably less evident or controlled by um, the financial service industries or, or payments companies is the evolution of um, different business models. So if I look at even something simple as going to get your groceries, probably 10, 15 years ago, that was always you'd go down to Tesco or Sainsbury's or Walmart here in the US to go and collect your groceries versus now especially with COVID, we've seen that the rapid uptake of um, home delivery or click and collect as being the predominant way in which we now get our groceries. So that that shift in behaviour. Also similar to a lot of the online streaming services like Netflix um, in terms of now taking a monthly amount out of our um, bank accounts for sort of unlimited access to different, um, I guess, movies and TV shows, whereas before that it would be going to Blockbuster or going to the movies was the principal way in which we would consume that content and I guess each of those sort of change the way in which we we pay for services or technology and then we also get unexpected things like I guess the 9-11 was one example where there was a sudden unexpected shock in terms of the system in terms of how people traveled and now with the pandemic with COVID-19 we saw a, a big surge in I guess panic shopping in terms of people stockpiling goods um, from grocery stores and then all of the social distancing where a lot of the, the normal interactions of, of consumers no longer going to um, restaurants or picking up coffee at their local um, cafe, going to a pub, um, going to sporting events, all of those types of things have then influenced how we then, I guess, how our behaviour is observed from um, our interactions as we spend money. Out of interest, you, you talked there about um, a gradual and increasingly popular transition to different types of payments. I suppose right now there is a difference in that whereas it's been the, the financial services controlling the introduction of those services previously and hoping that there's an uptake and that people kind of get on board with it and maybe people are a bit like, oh, why are we doing this? What yeah. was wrong with what we were doing before? Versus now people going, I don't want to get this virus. Therefore, I yeah. don't want to hand you over cash. It's, it's yeah. almost a completely, you know, I, I suppose for, at the minute, the financial institutions are having to roll out services quickly at scale to keep up with consumer uh, desire to maintain social distance and, and, and shield, et cetera. Yeah, and having to be able to adapt, especially if you look at like even restaurants that traditionally didn't have any takeout service and now have to take payments remotely or over the phone, whereas before they were always had the customer in their restaurant and they're able to provide their card or their phone to be able to pay for those. So it's been, I guess, the transition of both the business owners, but then the technologies that support them to be able to um, participate in that. And then the rollout of 
um, online ordering for, for shops that didn't traditionally um, have that as part of their business model. So look, how are the how are those influencing factors driving um, fraud and financial crime? It'd be interesting to see what what you see the targets. Is it is it restaurants who've never given takeout before suddenly having a new service and and not being kind of au fait with all of the systems? Or I suppose when you're talking about someone who's got click and collect or they've got streaming services, quite frankly, I sometimes get that report from the bank going, was this transaction you? And you'll get it popping up. And if it's if it's from a streaming service, they might not be in London. It's not like I can go, oh, well, that's local to me. Therefore, yeah, that was me. Yeah. It might be it might be in California or something. And I'm kind of going, well, that, that might have been me. Uh, you know, I, I bought some some running sunglasses online during during lockdown, and it's handled. The processes are all handled by a completely different company name. When it first popped up on on the transaction list, I was a bit unsure if that was what I what I thought it was. Yeah, and I think that where you look at things um, like how fraud is traditionally caught, it's looked at well, what is a behaviour that I'm expecting all of my population to participate in, and I'm going to sort of say that's that's the type of payment or the activity that I want to allow to happen. And then when I see something that fits a, a fraudulent pattern before, then this, these are the activities that I'm going to stop and prevent. Um, and that's usually done in a, in a controlled way because we see more of a gradual controlled change in those payments, sort of the uptake in um, online payments or the uptake in Apple Pay or contactless payments. That when we do have the this sudden change is we need those systems to be able to adapt really quickly and sort of say well given the context of how customers are now interacting um, with restaurants or where you normally shop like it's it's even though it's a new method it's still something that fits within the characteristic of you so those those systems need to adapt with those changes of behavior without influencing or, or stopping um, you from being able to, to transact and, and interact with those businesses in terms of the impact then that it's having on on the financial institutions in terms of fraud detection, you said there, you know, look, looking looking for patterns of where you might expect that person to spend their money. But I suppose there is a challenge that that data is looking a little bit different these days. To how and they're brand new patterns that we've never seen before, yeah. Exactly. So how, how are organizations um, adopting or moving quickly enough to keep up and spot those patterns and go, okay, those running sunglasses weren't bought in London but they are running sunglasses and we know this person likes to run. So maybe this isn't fraud. And I guess that's a, a, a key way in which you need to do that is you need to understand that individual and you need to say, based on the context of, well, maybe they bought running shoes two months ago. So now buying running sunglasses, we can identify that that person's likely to be a runner. So that makes sense in the, in the context of that particular person. Versus but but if we, the most institutions, I suppose, have the capability to spot that. Cause that that's, you know, we talk about data, we talk about legacy data, but, you know, having structured data to that degree and having, I suppose, the the autonomous capability, the machine learning capability to spot that is a different challenge entirely. No, definitely. And I guess that's the challenge that we've solved at Feature Space is when we are working with our financial institutions is each individual um, consumer has their own um, spending profile. So we're learning the types of places that they like to shop, how they shop, when they shop. And we're comparing new transactions to what they've done historically and saying, does that fit the context of how we've seen them interact before? So we're able to sort of say, what are the, I guess, deviations or the, the ways in which that spending will evolve as you move from different types of products 
within the same types of categories versus it's that sort of being like if you're a runner but not a motor enthusiast and then we suddenly see a, an order for for expensive alloy wheels then we'll know that's more likely to be fraudulent because we haven't seen those, that previous interaction in those particular areas so we're able to put into those that context in terms of um, starting to understand I, I guess preferences based on how we've seen you interact with different um, businesses. So just out of interest, how, how do you see behavior changing? Um, I would assume, obviously, there's there's a huge amount more spending going on online at the minute, but that that's a very basic way of looking at it. Are, are people spending money on slightly different things? I've heard a lot of people talk about the fact that through the pandemic, uh, people's attitudes towards what they have is changing slightly, and maybe people are becoming less materialistic, so maybe they're spending their money on slightly different things. I don't know. Yeah, and I guess also spending things in, in different ways. So one, with us all being at home more, um, one of the things that I've heard is um, gardening has become a lot more popular. And um, then gardening, um, like buying plants or power tools or gardening equipment wasn't typically something that a lot of people did online. So then it's a change in terms of how you then um, source that equipment has then been in terms of some of those behaviours that we've then seen going through. Um, and even looking like us, uh, we've got two two boys and finding ways to entertain those and different services that are available. I guess we've changed our unspending behavior to try to um, find things for, to keep them occupied as well. So look, if someone is is a keen runner and they get, oh, maybe, maybe running is not the best example. Let's, let's go with a, with a car enthusiast because that, that was a good example. You know, you can't, you can't really drive anywhere or there's not been much point in driving anywhere of late, but then you become a keen gardener. Then I suppose... 2020 does cause this unique problem and forecasting ahead to 2021 becomes a lot more challenging. Um, yeah. How are you working to try and help institutions through that and, and better understand what might be happening down the line, say in 12 months time? Uh, that's going to be one of the biggest um, for how we've typically looked at like machine learning models that forecast into the future. And even another good example that I think is um, the Olympics. So that's typically a nice four-year cycle between when we suddenly have an Olympic Games and this year we're going to have, it'll be five years and then um, probably revert back to three years. So there's going to be a long-term impact in terms of um, all of the like different um, things that people stop or sort of buy around the, the Olympics. And so for me, this is then, it's about be, building um, the intelligence into these systems to be able to react much more quickly. So it's not about taking like 12 months, 18 months worth of data and forecasting around those, it's got to be these systems need to adapt much more quickly to what's happening over the last hour, the last day, the last week, and being able to sort of say, I'm now saying like, the European Championships will be next year as well. So another change in terms of when a, a major sporting event. So we'll see the travel industry in terms of um, being able to move people to those sporting events will suddenly be different, um, but won't fit the normal seasonal trend that we've typically seen in the past. Well, look, I think it's a fascinating area. There's 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 a lot of nuance and obviously a lot of change. So it's fascinating to hear what you think's going on. And also good to hear about how Feature Space are working in that p particular area. Um, I, as I said, it's morning in Atlanta, uh, afternoon here in, in London, but I'll let you get back to your day. Thank you for taking some time to chat to us on the podcast. Yeah, it was great to be on. Thanks, David. Right. I, I think the key point that he's making here uh, and the challenge is that previously data was able to be built up and a profile was able to be built up over a gradual period of time. Yeah. Not only have we shopped more online, yes, but people who traditionally have never shopped online 
have been shopping online. Yeah, they've been forced to. Yeah. So if you've been shielding, you might not have done online deliveries of whatever else and you may not have had any online profile and all of a sudden you may well have an online profile for stuff that you've never previously bought. So I can understand that the challenge for the tech industry is enormous. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where he's kind of found a pathway, really, because he's looking at not over time, but, you know, hour to hour, day by day. Yeah. And look, you're a project manager at at Penguin Random House, a tech project manager, which is why it's always handy having you in the house to come on the show, (laughs) because you probably know a bit more than I do. Uh, But if someone was to literally go, ah, we've, I don't know, times five the amount of data that we previously had and now we have to make sense of it the business would probably go into a bit of a panic yeah 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 it really would you'd wonder where the heck to store it all yeah and what to do with it and and you know it might be that organization i would imagine that online ordering of, of things like books in physical form have gone up i know we've bought some books yeah so it, you know I, I think when we think about um online shopping habits we do tend to think about groceries and maybe big ticket items but we are talking about every facet of life here where you might have just popped down to the shop or popped to waterstones people are literally buying everything online yeah and i thought it's quite interesting what he was saying about gardening like i didn't know that you could buy flowers online but everybody i know are you kidding we get freddie's flowers delivered every two weeks (laughs) no you know what i mean like gardening (laughs) stuff like i didn't know you could just go and get some geraniums to put outside i thought you had to go to a garden center i just didn't know that there was a massive profile of them online so well i was surprised by the the, the kind of the power tools comment like lawnmowers and so on i suppose you must be able to buy those things online but i quite like going to have a look at them yeah same with flowers well, yes, absolutely. Yes, because I know that you like to pick a bunch that aren't yet quite open, etc. Yeah. Yes. Um, interesting, the comment as well around the cycle uh, for the Olympics, the European uh, tournaments that we're going to have five years and we're going to have three years and the knock-on effects that that will have on travel. Um, I suppose all of those plans, forward planning that organisations were going to have in terms of what profiles might look like have gone out the window. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought that was a problem until he mentioned that. No, it never occurred to me. Um, yes, we should probably think about uh, booking a holiday in advance of next summer. It might be quite tricky. <laughs> Prices might go up. Lots of travel. Um, yeah, no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be tempting you to go down. That no, because the problem is, is I will. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, look, I, I, it stands to reason, as we said, brand new patterns are being created, and the challenge here is going to be keeping up, and not just. Uh, understanding data that's created over months but understanding data as it changes over hours and days and I'm uh, I'm surprised that so far I haven't had more questions of is this fraud I think my card's been blocked once in lockdown and it was one of those ones where you get an app a notification going we've temporarily frozen your card was this you and actually if you compare that to, to a service five years ago where you then, you then had to ring up, answer oh, questions, whatever else. Oh, it was a nightmare. You constantly be doing it. You don't usually buy this. Well, no, but, I'm, but that's why I'm buying it because I don't have it. Yeah. So So the, the lack of friction in the system now is, is really quite remarkable and all the better for it given the situation we're facing. Yeah, and sadly, Rabe, no one stopped my card. <laughs> no, no, there is that. Anyway... We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm talking to Ken Deeks. He's the founder of Bike Night, and he's talking all about Boycott Your Bed. So that's after a quick break. Hayley, thanks for spending some time to chat. No worries.
So on Friday the 21st of August through to the morning of the Saturday the 22nd of August of this year, thousands of people across the country are going to be boycotting their beds uh, in an effort to raise money for action for children through a concept that's been dreamt up by the team behind Bike Night. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Ken Deeks, who is the founder of Bike Night, founded Bike Night 22 years ago. So thanks for, for spending a bit of time to chat to us, Ken. Pleasure, David. Absolute pleasure. Anyone who's a, a regular listener to the podcast over the years will, will know that we've we've done Bike Night a number of times. So this is exciting because it's kind of taking the legacy of that event and what you've built over over 20 plus years and doing something a little bit different, right? Yeah, and we're really excited about this, David. I mean, this is just such a such a transition from what we had before. You know, we had a brilliant event. Um, Bite Night was founded in 1998. I think that first year we had 30 people there and we raised £30,000 for Action for Children. Um, it was always a great cause. It's always been a great cause. Um, you know, there's so many children today who are, you know, still in poverty. Um, COVID-19 has obviously made the situation worse and there's thousands and thousands of young people at the moment that you know that need our help and action for children is brilliant at providing that help and and if you look at the event you know that like i said we started in 1998 uh we built it up over the years um two years ago the event raised uh, a peak at 1.3 million pounds uh in one night 1.3 million pounds in one night right and um, and that took us through to 10 million that we've raised uh, since it started. Um, to be honest, I think it was due a change anyway. COVID-19 came along and it made it very difficult for Bike Night to happen this year for obvious reasons. And so we came up with this idea of, of instead of having a corporate event um, where teams sleep out, teams sleep out in central locations, what we do, we'd make this much more of an individual event. Um, and so we came up with the idea of boycott your bed. And fundamentally, we're saying, right, instead of sleeping out as a team in a in a central location, you know, do it, do it in your garden or do it in a dog bed or do it in the bath. You know, sleep somewhere other than your bed to help raise money for action for children. I suppose the interesting thing about this is, is in the past there's been there is that corporate element to it, and you've got teams that are coming together from offices, and there is there always has been an onus that you have to raise a certain you know you've got to get over a certain line to to kind of make it work. You, there is a there is quite a responsibility, I suppose, given to the organisations that are taking part to make sure they raise the money and and that they really kind of invest in it. I'm not suggesting that people aren't going to have to invest in it because, of course, they are this year. It's it's still going to be a night where they're sleeping somewhere uncomfortable. But I suppose there's a there's a really lovely kind of quite low barrier of entry for people where you could you could you could raise fifty or a hundred quid from friends and family, and have you could have I suppose tenfold more people getting involved because you know you could you could get friends and family involved and say, look, why don't why don't you get in you know. Why don't you come on and join in? Uh, and anyone, anywhere can do this. It's quite an easy thing to take part in, right? Although the night itself will be probably quite uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make a really good point, David. This is just this is just opened up to so many more people that might otherwise have felt that they couldn't do it as part of a team because they couldn't raise the five hundred, seven hundred thousand pounds that we were asking people to raise at that time. I mean, you know, three years ago, I think it was number. 15 or 16 in in uh, the league table of mass mass participation mass participation charity events 
behind things like um, you know, Race for Life, Macmillan Coffee Morning, but it is number one in terms of the amount raised per head. This has changed completely now. What we're looking for is we're looking for individuals who are saying, this is a good cause. This is something I want to be involved with. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm going to do it. And I I can raise 50 quid, 100 quid, because the great thing is there are absolutely no costs involved in putting it on. So the 50 quid goes straight to putting the food on the table of a vulnerable child that needs that food. And that's why it's such a brilliant thing. Do it. Raise 100 quid. Raise 100 quid and it goes straight to the, the people that need it most. And um, and why wouldn't you do it? And, mm. and the point you make about it being an uncomfortable night, I guess, you know, to get sponsorship, you, you've got to be doing something, right? I'm not going to say, you know, sponsor me to, you know, sponsor me to do something I'd want to do, right? Because I'm sleeping in a dog bed. I have a small dog, okay? So it's going to be uncomfortable, <laughs> So, you know, although it's partly cause-related, it's also challenge-related. And, you know, I'm hoping, well, I've already got a few people that said, yeah, of course, I'll sponsor you, Kent. I've had people saying, I'll sponsor you. This is the difference, David, this year. People have said, I'm not going to sponsor you because I'm going to do it. Okay, and that for me is the big shift. You know, the email doesn't say, please sponsor me. The email says, you know, please sponsor me. Or do it. And the number of people are saying, I want to do it. Effectively, it's the 23rd iteration, I suppose, of, of Bite Night. But if people are interested, they just need to go to boycottyourbed.co.uk. All of the information is there. I'm going to give a shameless plug as well to the Harvey Nash team and say, if for whatever reason you don't fancy getting your dog bed out and, and, and sleeping in the dog bed or in the garden... We're raising money. We're going to be doing this. Myself, my boss, Andy Hayes, um, and a few of our colleagues. So our our team fundraising link is in the notes to the podcast. Um, if you just fancy helping our cause. Um, but look, as, as as a last word, Ken, um, you you obviously, as he said there, you you are sleeping in the dog bed. You've had other people saying they're going to get involved themselves. Anything that's really made you kind of double take and go, you're going to sleep where? <laughs> no, no, I haven't actually. I mean, people have been, you know, the usual thing has been the bar, clearly dog beds, and we've had people going to sleep on the floor. People are going to, you know, sleep in the garden. People are just going to sleep in their garages. I think I even heard one person say they're going to sleep in their allotment, which is uh, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. We've had sheds and all of that kind of stuff. And in fact, in some instances, if we can apply it, you know, around the social distancing. Um, I think a couple of people are even saying I might get some of my team and we might do it together if we can. And, you know, I, I just think it's a brilliant, brilliant idea, but it's a brilliant cause. We cannot lose sight of the fact that right now Action for Children is helping the most vulnerable people here in the UK. And the great thing about Action for Children is, is it's just such a lovely charity. It, it finds these kids. It finds where they are and it, and it, and it, and it fire swoops in and grabs them and pulls them out of whatever difficulties they're in. And they're there to look after them and care for them and give them the support that every, every child should have and deserves. Ken, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you and obviously uh, to try and help continue the, the work that you started 22 years ago. And fingers crossed, lots of people listening will go and check out the website, boycottyourbed.co.uk, and get involved themselves and, and raise some money for a brilliant cause. And thank you so much, David, for um, 
you know, giving us the opportunity to publicise the event through this podcast. Really appreciate it. I know you've done, as you said, you've done Bite Night on a number of for a number of years, and um, really massively value your support. So thank you.